Are we on, Caleb? There we are. Good evening, everyone. It's good to see you. I can't believe you keep coming back. That's awesome. <laughs> you make me feel really good. So let's go ahead and open up with prayer, and then we'll get started. Lord, thank you for this day. Thank you for just the amazing love that you show each and every one of us. And Lord, I pray that you will uh, open our hearts and minds that we can see you in new ways. I pray, Lord, that you will help us to understand what we're talking about tonight and that we can understand it in a way that you will be able to use that knowledge in us and through us to guide people to truth. So, Lord, um, help us to be empathetic, help us to be loving, and help us to stand on the truth of who you are and how you reveal yourself to us in your word and through your word. So, Lord, be honored and glorified, we pray. We pray this in the amazing and wonderful name of Jesus and all God's people said, amen, amen. So, this evening we're going to talk about Jehovah's Witness, um, and I put some materials on the tables that you can take a look at um, related to the Jehovah's Witness uh, teaching. I find that to be helpful at times. So, I want to start out with a question. It's more of a rhetorical question than it is a question that I want you to answer out loud, but I want you to think about how, how much influence do you have in other people's lives? Just think about that for a moment. How much influence do you have in other people's lives? Think about the people around you and how they look at you and the influence that you have. Because I think that we have more influence than what we give ourselves credit for. Let me give you a really quick story. So my wife and I were missionaries in Russia. We moved there in August of 1994. Now in our family, the most special day of the year is October 28th. That's my wife's birthday. I start hearing about that special day usually in July or August, so I don't forget. And then I can continue to plan for that day, which by the way, it's next Saturday. I'm on it. But when we were in Russia, we'd only been there for a short time, uh, and October 28th was coming up. So I wanted to do something special for my wife. There was a team of, of uh, other missionaries that we knew in a city about two hours away. So I sent an email to them and I said, hey, I'm going to surprise my wife. Our team here in Kostroma, we're going to take my wife out for dinner. And while we're out for dinner, please come to our apartment and then we're going to have a surprise birthday party for her. And then your team can split up and spend the night in the apartments of our team. And so we had it all arranged, and I thought it was arranged quite well, but the one thing that I didn't think through is that the Russian interpreter that we sent to the bus station to pick up the team from two hours away had never been to our apartment before. And we're in a city of 350,000 people. 
And so we're going along, we're having a great evening, we get back to the apartment, and lo and behold, the team is there. We have a great evening. The next week, I talked to that interpreter, I think her name was Svetlana, and I said, Svetlana, I said, how did you find our apartment? Oh, she said, that was really easy. She said, I knew what trolley bus stop you lived at. Now, at our trolley bus stop, there were probably 20, 25,000 people that lived at that trolley bus stop. She said, I knew what trolley bus stop you lived at. So she said, I just took the team to that trolley bus stop, and I asked someone waiting at the bus stop, where do the Americans live? I said, they said, oh, they live over in that building over there. So she said, we walked over to that building. Someone came out of a doorway. I said, what apartment do the, do the Americans live in? She goes, oh, they live in apartment number 27. Now, we didn't know any of these people. But they watched. They watched. Now, granted, we were Americans in Russia. But that's not much different anymore than Christians in the world. Think about that. So I, want, I, I just want you to think about how much influence you have over other people or in other people's lives. I was wrestling with that question this week as I was getting ready for tonight because there was a pastor in New York. I drew a map of New York last week. I'm not, I didn't try to do it again because you actually recognized it last week and I was afraid to push my luck. But there was a pastor there by the name of William Miller. William Miller began to question basic doctrines of the Christian faith. And from his movement, a number of different cults and sects came out of that. And Jehovah's Witnesses are one of them. And it all came from primarily a questioning of how could a loving God send people to an eternal suffering, a place that we reference as hell? And that question and that denial of a basic Christian doctrine led us to a slippery slope that created other questions that led to other untruths that created other questions that led to other untruths. And now we have millions of people who believe they're following God and believing in Jesus, but it's not the Jesus that we find in Scripture. So I want to talk tonight about Jehovah's Witnesses. Our time will probably be a little shorter tonight because there's not as much to talk about as it relates to Jehovah's Witnesses. So I want to just throw out there that towards the end, if you have questions about any of the other religious systems that we've talked about, I would, I would uh, be open to fielding questions on those as well. But let's, let's get started with Jehovah's Witnesses. So what I'm going to do is the way I've, I've put this together, and you can see it on the handout that I gave you, there are three significant leaders that helped form the Jehovah's Witness movement that we have today. And so I'm going to focus a little bit on them first, and then from there we're going to get into the belief systems of the Jehovah's Witness Church. So the founder of Jehovah's Witness movement is a man by the name of Charles Taze Russell. 
Russell was born in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania into a committed Presbyterian family. In his teenage years, he became an avowed skeptic, discarding the Bible and church creeds. He began to study other religions, Eastern religions, but didn't find what he was looking for. This is a common, this is a common history that you're going to see in the lives of people that have moved away from Christianity or have changed some of the basic doctrines of Christianity. He appreciated the Adventist rejection of eternal punishment or the idea of hell. And so he started going to a study, a Millerite study, not an Adventist study, but a Millerite study where they were talking about that. Eventually then, uh, he began, he further rejected the Trinity and the immortality of the soul, and ultimately he rejected hell. And we'll see that in the doctrines of Jehovah's Witness beliefs. He came to believe that Christ would be invisibly present on the earth before Armageddon broke out. So here's where we get into, I don't know how familiar you are, but there are a sequence of prophecies in the Jehovah's Witness movement that talk about the coming of Jesus, the reign of God on earth, uh, the second coming of Christ. There are a number of different prophecies related to that, four or five different prophecies. And the first one was Russell's prophecy that Christ would come invisibly to the earth um, before Armageddon. He believed that Christ would be that Christ became invisibly present in 1874 and that his kingdom would be fully established on earth in 1914. So in that period of time, they tried to proselytize as much as possible because in 1914, things were going to change significantly on earth. In 1881, he established the Watchtower and Tract Society of Pennsylvania which is the legal agency of the Jehovah's Witnesses. So this is what's interesting, is they're registered in Pennsylvania, but they operate in New York City. And so there's actually two Watchtower Societies. There's the Watchtower Society of Pennsylvania, which is the foundation or the mothership of Jehovah's Witnesses. And then there's a Watchtower Society in New York, which at one time was one of the largest landowners in New York City. So it's a very wealthy church, with its real estate. As the time got closer to 1914, he began organizing teams of people to go door to door to share the literature and inform people of the coming of God's kingdom. By 1904, he had written six volumes known as Studies in Scripture, which became the foundation for all future witness theology. There's a copy of those six books, The Divine Plan of Ages. He ultimately proclaimed that anyone who read these volumes alone, even without consulting the Bible, would nevertheless have the light of Scripture. So you didn't necessarily need the Bible, you just needed those six volumes. And if you studied those six volumes, then that would take you to the truth. Very similar to what we talked about last week. But instead of six volumes, there was one primary volume. You remember what that volume was? The Book of Mormon, okay? In 1906, because of a lot of turmoil and a lot of dissension in his family life, his wife left him and they divorced. 
I'm not going to spend a long time on this. I just wanted you to see this, okay? So we have 1874, Christ's invisible return, 1878, the harvesting period, 1914, the end of Gentile times, 1918, the anointed class received in heaven, and then 1975 is not on there. The last prophecy of the second coming of Christ was in 1975 that Christ would return. So they had all these different prophecies. Now, what do you do with those? Because if you believe the Bible, what does the Bible say about prophecy? If a prophecy is of God, then it must what? Come true. So it's interesting. I spent a little time this week just researching the 1914 prophecy and some of the others. And it's interesting how they have rewritten their theology relating to the prophecies and how they were fulfilled, but they were fulfilled differently than what most people understood them to be fulfilled. The second strong leader of the Jehovah's Witness movement was a man by the name of Joseph Franklin Rutherford. He was a judge in Missouri, so he became known as Judge Rutherford. Born in Morgan County, Missouri, into a hardworking Baptist family. As a child, he would argue against hell. He changed the leadership organization of the Watchtower Society following Russell's death from a leadership board to a sole leadership position. So in other words, he didn't abolish the board, he marginalized the board, and he took over sole uh, leadership of the Jehovah's Witness movement. He was a very, very strong leader. He was feared because of his strong leadership. You didn't get in his way. He wrote The Finished Mystery, which he proclaimed to be the seventh and final volume to be added to studies in Scripture written by Russell. That's the other book. So if you had all seven of those books, you were good to go. You didn't need the Bible. Just read those seven books, and that would lead you to the truth. He prophesied that God's kingdom would be established in 1925 and that the Old Testament patriarchs would be resurrected and live in San Diego. He built a mansion in San Diego called Beth Sarim, where the patriarchs would come and live. And we all know that they didn't come in 1925. But he wintered in Beth Sarim until, until he died. There's a picture of the house in San Diego. Still there, as far as I know. Pardon? Not all the time, but in the winter, he would winter there, yeah. Yeah. But it was a house that the church paid for, so they kept it in the, in the Jehovah's Witness church. I'm sorry? <laughs> so, now this is the man who formed Jehovah's Witness movement as we know it best today, okay? Nathan Knorr, he was born in Bethlehem, Pennsylvania, raised in the Reformed Church. He was more quiet and shy than Russell and Rutherford, and he preferred to work behind the scenes. So he was more, instead of this dynamic upfront leader who kind of had 
control over the people. He was a more behind-the-scenes, get-things-done-through-the-organization type leader. And that's what helped form the, the structure of Jehovah's Witness movement and policies of the movement to today. So he relinquished, he relinquished authority from the presidency back to the board. So since him, the, the Jehovah's Witness movement, the Watchtower Society has been run by a board of elders rather than one sole leader. He also developed a new translation of the Bible to be used by the witnesses called the New World Translation. A copy of it's going around somewhere. He instituted a program to train witnesses in how to give presentations on the doorstep. So if you remember, it was Russell who developed door-to-door witnessing, and it's Nor who perfected that. He developed the training program for them as they go door-to-door to be more effective. He believed the prophecy that 6,000 years of human history from the time of Adam to present would come to an end in 1975. And so they taught that very strongly, and as I've read, I don't know, I was young when I was in 1975, um, so I don't remember exactly all the details of that, but I've read that people would sell their houses, quit their jobs, all in preparation for the coming of Christ in 1975, and then it didn't happen. So it hurt a lot of people. All right. So now let's get into their beliefs. What were some of the influences that led to their, to their primary beliefs? There was a movement called millenarianism, which is a belief in a coming ideal society, especially one created by revolutionary action that would come in thousand-year increments. So that was something that led to the prophetic uh, side of Jehovah's Witnesses. They believed in Christ's secret return to earth in 1874 and that he would fully establish his kingdom by 1914. So that was a strong driving force in the development of Jehovah's Witness theology. And they still reference 1914, but they reference it differently than what the original prophecy was referenced as. And then the disbelief in hell and the Trinity. Those are two very strong doctrines of the, of the Christian church that they absolutely reject. So prophecies. 1874, Jesus' second coming. Later it was discovered that he came secretly. 1914, Jesus' kingdom to be fully established on earth. So what we need to understand here, let me just take a time out and a pause here. When they talk about the kingdom of God, they're thinking, what do you think about when you hear the term kingdom of God? So Jesus taught about the kingdom of God. That was all throughout the Gospels. In fact, Jesus in in Acts chapter 1, it says in the 40 days he had that are written about in the first chapter of of Acts, he taught about the, the kingdom of God. And so, is the kingdom of God a literal governmental rule here on earth? No, it's a rule in our hearts. It's a rule in the lives of those who believe in God, and we allow God to be the king on the throne of our hearts, right? And so the kingdom of God is where believers exist. It's not a physical place per se. It's where people who believe in Christ have surrendered to Christ, and they give Him full rule and reign in their lives, okay? Now, but in the Jehovah's Witness church, It is a literal political system. 
And so that's what they're looking for. That's what they're looking for. And that... So they explain that, that um, I don't remember it word for word. You can go to jw.org and they'll, they'll explain it better than I will. But essentially what it is is Jesus came secretly, and so the kingdom rule is also a secret rule that one day will come to fruition and, and God will rule on, in heaven and on earth. So that feeds into, I'm kind of getting ahead of myself, but I want to get ahead of myself to try and answer the question. So you've probably heard of the 144,000, okay? In Jehovah's Witness theology, they believe that there were 144,000 who would rule and reign in heaven with Christ. But that 144,000 was fulfilled in 1935. So what about all the other witnesses? And that's where they added a second um, called other sheep, and that's anyone after 1935 who has uh, joined the Jehovah's Witness Church, and they believe then that there will be a new earth, a paradise on earth, and that, the hundred, that anything after the 144,000 will remain here in paradise. And that little red book there and the big red book, they're both the same. They talk about you can live forever in paradise on earth, and that's talking about the other sheep, Okay. So the 144,000 will rule and reign in heaven with Christ, and they'll rule over the paradise on earth. So that's their basic theology. And so that will come to fruition. It was supposed to happen in 1914, didn't, and so it will come to fruition later. That's what they believe. Good question. Thank you. In 1925, Jesus' second coming uh, was predicted by Judge Rutherford and didn't happen. 1975, end of the world prophecy didn't happen. So there's some work to be done on their part to try and, and rectify uh, prophecies that haven't been fulfilled. And they do. They try to rectify those. So what is their belief related to the Bible? And there's something that I want to I say here before we get into the beliefs. As in many of the churches that we looked at, um, they've softened their presentation of their beliefs. So if you go to jw.org now and you try to find their teaching on the Bible, you're going to get, you will be taken to about four or five different pages that are going to explain different pieces of the Bible, but never one comprehensive that's going to say, this is absolutely what we believe. That teaching will come in the church. And so just 10, 15 years ago, you could go to jw.org and you would have a whole list of their beliefs. And that's now gone. Now it's, it's a bunch of different explanations and teachings on it. So what do they believe on the Bible? If you would Google Bible with J, uh, on the jw.org website, this is what you'd find. We recognize the Bible as God's inspired message to humans. We base our beliefs on all 66 books, which include the Old Testament and the New Testament. Professor Jason D. Badoon aptly described it when he wrote that the Jehovah's Witnesses built their system of belief and practice from the raw material of the Bible without predetermining what was to be found there. You catch that? And so 
taking history, taking previous understandings, taking all of that out, let's look at the Bible all anew and let the Bible teach us what it's supposed to be. While we accept the entire Bible, we are not fundamentalists. We recognize that parts of the Bible are written in figurative or symbolic languages and are not to be understood literally. Does somebody have the New World Translation of the Bible? Can you look up for me John 1.1? So what they did was in under Nor, they, they uh, have their own translation of Scripture, and there are some changes that were made in the translation. So John 1.1, we all know that, right? In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Chuck, what does it say there? Whoop, what? Yeah. So they've rejected the deity of Christ. Christ and we'll, when we talk about Jesus, I'll unpack that. But that is a new understanding when you throw everything else out the window and you look at the Bible with unbiased eyes. They have their own translation, New World Translation. So God, who, oops, who is God? We worship the one true and almighty God, the creator whose name is Jehovah. He's the God of Abraham, Moses, and Jesus. And then what they've done is they've gone through the Bible, and anywhere that Yahweh is written in there, they've replaced that with Jehovah. So in your Bibles, I don't know if you're familiar with, but when you, when you read most of the translations of the Bible now, where it says Lord, and it'll be L, capital O, capital R, capital D, in Hebrew, that's Yahweh. So all of those have been replaced with Jehovah. Because Jehovah is his name. And in the Christian translations of the Bible, they've gotten that wrong. They've removed Jehovah and they've put Yahweh in there. Now, why is that significant? Are you familiar with the name Yahweh? Where do we first encounter Yahweh in Scripture? Exodus 3. Exodus 3.14, Moses is on Mount Nebo, he's grazing his sheep, and he sees this anomaly off to the side, it's a bush that's on fire, but it never burns up. Curiosity gets the best of Moses, Moses walks over there, and as he approaches the bush, the bush speaks to him and says, Moses, the ground on which you're standing is holy ground, take your sandals off. And God begins to speak to Moses. And that's where God calls Moses to go back to Egypt and bring his people out. And Moses has this conversation with God, and he says, yeah, but God, if I go back and I tell them that God has sent me to take you out of Egypt, they're going to ask me, but who is he? What's his name? So what am I supposed to tell them, God? And in 3.14, the Lord says to, to Moses, tell them that Yahweh sent you, the I am. Now, the interesting part of that, that name in Hebrew, there are no vowels, only consonants. 
They have vowel points that they will add to help you read the Hebrew language, but the Hebrew language is primarily consonants. That's Yahweh. And that name in Hebrew has three meanings. I am who I am, I was who I was, and I will be who I will be. It transcends time, you all. So when God introduced himself to Moses and he said, I am, what he's saying to Moses is, I've always been, I am, and I always will be. Now, how significant is that? That's hugely significant. In fact, it's so significant that when my wife and I were in Russia, I don't know, did I tell you all this story already about school children in Russia? In Russia, much of the communist system, most, much, not must, most, much of the communist indoctrination of the people were actually biblical principles. They just removed God and they removed scripture references. But the principles of getting along the principles of building a society, they were biblical in many respects. Not in every respect, but in many respects. Every school child. So today, when a child goes to school, what do they do in the morning? They stand up and they do what? Pledge of Allegiance. Every school child in the Soviet Union from the early 1900s to the fall of the Soviet Union in 1989 started the school day exactly the same. And I'll say it in Russian, then I'll translate it for you. Lenin boil, Lenin yeast, Lenin budget. Lenin was, Lenin is, and Lenin will be. What? What? Lenin is transcendent? There's only one who's transcendent. And that's Yahweh. But that's how significant God's name is. Even the communists understood that, you all. And so when we think about going through Scripture and removing the name Yahweh and replacing it with Jehovah. So where did the name Jehovah come from? I'm glad you asked. Good question. So in Judaism, you all, good, good, faithful, religious Jews will not mention God's name because if they mention his name, they know that they are less than perfect, less than holy, and they feel that they will defame his name if they speak it. So if you go on the internet, and you go to a really strict Jewish website, you will see God's name written this way. Because even to write his name could defame it. So what happened was, Yahweh, you couldn't say that, you couldn't even write that because you wouldn't want to defame the name of God. So they substituted some of the letters and they have, Jehovah, or now you can say 
an iteration of his name, but you won't defame it because you're not saying his full name. Does that make sense? And so when you see Jehovah in Scripture, that's where the Jews are writing God's name with the iteration, not the name that God gave them. But it's, it's written to honor God. But it doesn't carry the same significance, the transcendence of Yahweh. So what do they believe about Jesus? We follow the teachings and example of Jesus Christ and honor Him as our Savior and as the Son of God. Thus, we are Christians. However, we have learned that the Bi from the Bible that Jesus is not Almighty God and there's no, script scriptural base no scriptural basis for the Trinity doctrine. So, flat out, Jesus is not God. So, who is He? Who is He? If you dig deeper in their theology, they will teach you that Actually, the archangel Michael is the spiritual uh, predecessor of the human Jesus. So, Michael was the spokesperson for God in the Old Testament, and thus, when God wanted to reveal himself on earth in human form, the archangel Michael gave up his spirit and entered Mary and became human, who we know as Jesus. So when Jesus died, not on the cross, but on the stake, and he was in the grave, on the third day, his body disintegrated, and, our, and the archangel Michael rose in spirit form and entered back into heaven. It's a lot of gymnastics, yeah. But when you talk about what Jesus did, did he die on the stake? Yes, he did. Did he go in the grave? Yes, he did. Did someone or something rise on the third day? Yes, they did. And so when Jesus or when, yeah, when I'm just going to say Jesus, when Jesus rose from the dead on the third day, he rose in spirit form and he presented himself as we see in Scripture, but then when He ascended into heaven, He didn't ascend in human form. He ascended as a spirit that looked like a human, and He continued the ministry that He had prior to by being the mouthpiece of God. I know it's a lot to wrap your head around, but, but this is some of the, the teaching that we need to understand. This is why, if you go all the way back to some of our first times together, I, I encourage you all, when you're talking to someone, make sure that you get the definition of the terms that you're using because the definitions of those terms are going to be very different from one another. Holy Spirit is God's power in action, His active force. God sends out His Spirit by projecting His energy to any place to accomplish His will. Holy Spirit is not a person. 
in Jehovah's Witness theology. He is only the Spirit of God that God sends out to do His, His bidding for Him. The kingdom of God is a real government in heaven, not a condition in the hearts of Christians. It will replace human governments and accomplish God's purposes for the earth. So when earth becomes a paradise, it will be God's rule on earth, a literal physical government. It will take these actions soon, for Bible prophecy indicates that we are living in the last days. Jesus is the king of God's kingdom in heaven. He began ruling in 1914. Salvation. Deliverance from sin and death is possible through the ransom sacrifice of Jesus. To benefit from the, that sacrifice, people must not only exercise faith in Jesus, but also change their course of life and get baptized. A person's works prove that his faith is alive. However, salvation cannot be earned. It comes through the undeserved kindness of God. So it's kind of wrestling with both sides. You have to do the right things, but to do the right things isn't necessarily going to save you. It takes faith to save you, but you build on that with the things that you do. Can I nerd out on you all just a little bit? Will you let me nerd out? So notice up there, I don't know if this pointer is going to show it for me. Yeah, they're kind of on there. See it where it says, uh, through the ransom sacrifice of Jesus? That's an atonement theory. I'm going to nerd, on, nerd out on you because I teach systematic theology at Bethel. And there is a, a, an atonement theory. You know what atonement is, right? It's what Christ did for us on the cross and in the grave that made us, uh, justified us and brought us into one with God again to have that relationship with Him. And so there's a, there's a popular theory that was out there in the early, 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 early church called the ransom theory. And basically what that is, is the belief that when Adam and Eve sinned, they fell out of favor with God and they became under the control of Satan. And Satan ruled over humanity until Jesus came and when he hung on the cross, he paid the ransom he fulfilled the ransom that God had negotiated with Satan for the release of humanity. And so when Jesus gave up his life on the cross, he paid that ransom. And humanity became free of Satan's control. And then God tricked Satan because he, he raised Jesus from the dead. And so Jesus defeated death. Now, there are all kinds of problems with this atonement theory, you all. One, the character of God. Would, would God ever lie? He can't. It's against his character, even if it's with Satan. He tricks Satan. I'll let Jesus die on the cross, and then you let my people go. Oh, oops, I didn't tell you I'm going to raise him from the dead and you're going to be defeated forever. No, God was very clear the whole time with Satan. Satan knew what he was getting into. And so it's, it's an attempt to merge a couple of ideas related to the atonement 
which is the substitution where Jesus goes to the cross in our place, but instead of thinking of it as a substitution, it's a ransom. And it's where it, it gets a little bit twisted. Now, I, that's way more than you needed to know, but I didn't want you to miss that ransom, that ransom idea, because it, it still it twists what Jesus, who Jesus is and what Jesus has done. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And Jesus came and died as a as more of a, an example of to show his love than to lay himself down as a ransom for the people. Yeah, there's all kinds of all kinds of ideas. Yeah. And so just to nerd a little bit with you, Chuck. And so that's where penal substitution and Christus Victor, if you can have those two side by side with one another, it fulfills even greater what Ransom is attempting to do. So, yeah. Anyway, thank you for letting me nerd for a moment. I, I enjoy that. But I want you to understand the Ransom because that's really, really important. And hopefully that will drive you to, to study and understand some of the other ideas, the other what, would, what I would call modes of atonement that are out there for us to truly understand who Jesus is. Because it's, that's, a, that's something we need to know. What did Jesus do for us on the cross and in the grave? That's huge. That's huge. Yes, essentially. It's Jesus paid the penalty of what people did, but it was, it was made to appease Satan. Yeah. Kind of like maybe God negotiating with Satan. Right. Uh, let's, let's do this to you. Yep, essentially. Now, thank you. Yes. So there's another really, really, really huge thing that we need to understand as it relates to this, okay? I'm going to ask you some questions, and please don't answer them. Let me say that again. I'm going to ask you some questions. Please don't answer them out loud. I want you to think about them, though. So God is omniscient. He's all-knowing. Is Satan omniscient? Don't answer. Because I ask that question to my students a lot, and all, many of them will say, well, sure he is. No, he's not. Satan is not omniscient. Satan approaches, if we understand Job and other passages of Scripture, Satan has to get God's permission before he can do anything. He stands before the throne of God accusing all the time. He's not all-knowing. He is a fallen angel, Scripture tells us. Angels are created beings. They're not like the Creator. 
So Satan doesn't know what you're going to do before you do it. Now, Scripture tells us he's sly, and he's smart. And so he can read us. He knows our past, and he can read us by our, the way we carry ourselves, by the way we interact with people or don't interact. So he's very smart that way, but he's not omniscient. God would never negotiate with Satan. God would never negotiate with Satan. Okay, Satan, if, if, I'll send my son to the cross so you'll release my people. No, God's omnipotent as well, all-powerful. No one can stand against God. No one. Satan is not omnipotent. He's strong, he's wily, but he's not omnipotent. But I can tell you what he is. He's defeated. He's defeated. Because when Jesus died on the cross, rose from the dead, death is defeated forever. Amen? He cannot stand against Jesus. And as followers of Christ, you all, we can live in victory. And so when we start changing Jesus, we start losing that. Jesus is God. Jesus is God, not a God. He is God. And that's why we have to have the Trinity to understand who God is. And that's another whole five-week session just trying to unpack the Trinity. But you all, imagine. So this is what I'll say to my students, and I know I'm getting off track here, but, but hopefully you'll bear with me. Imagine God in his infiniteness, trying to reveal himself to the finite beings he created, us. And he has to do that in terms that we can wrap our finite minds around, right? And so the Trinity is God's way of helping us to understand his magnitude and his intimacy, or what we call imminence, his nearness. So God is transcendent. He's outside of that, everything that he's created. He's not limited by that which he's created. But in his love, he steps into his creation, in his imminence, so that we can know him. And that's what makes him unique. How can we know him? We can know him as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Three persons, co-equal, and if you'll allow me to nerd just one more time, consubstantial, one essence, one God. But he reveals himself to us in these three persons that we can begin to wrap our minds around how great is, 
and awesome and loving and merciful and gracious and just. He is. He is so much greater than we could ever wrap our minds around, but yet he is so loving that he steps into our space and reveals himself to us in terms and language and images that we can understand so that we can have an intimate relationship with him. And thus, we desperately need the Trinity. If you throw that out, you throw out so much of trying to of God's showing us who he is so that we can know him. And he becomes this distant God that's unknowable. And it's no different than Islam, and it's no different than Hinduism, and it's no different than, you want me to keep going? Heaven. Jehovah God, Jesus Christ, and the faithful angels reside in the spiritual realm. A relatively small number of people, 144,000, will be resurrected to life in heaven to rule with Jesus in the kingdom. So that's the heavenly rule. And then we have paradise on earth. So God created the earth to be mankind's eternal home. God will bless obedient people with perfect health, everlasting life, in an earthly paradise. That's the other sheep that remain here on earth ruled by God, Jesus, and the 144,000 and the angels from heaven. Because the kingdom of God needs a government, and so they are the government. That's the only way I know how to, I don't, you know, they may have a different answer than that, but when you have a literal government of the kingdom of God, there have to be governors or rulers in that government. And so that's, that's the role that the heavenly beings play. It is. Yeah, it filled in 1935. I don't know, to be honest with you. I don't know. I, I've never read that it's all men. So it was uh, 144,000 believers, the first 144,000 believers, as I understand it, but I could be wrong on that. Don't quote me on that. Yes. Yes, in Revelation, they talk about the 144,000 believers. Um, and in, if you study eschatology, those 144,000 are often more often tied to uh, the 12 tribes of Israel. And there's, there's a whole uh, understanding related to that, but they've taken it to be 144,000 Jehovah's Witness believers. Yeah. So evil and suffering. These began when one of God's angels rebelled. This angel, who after his rebellion was called Satan and devil, persuaded the first human couple to join him, and the consequences have been disastrous for their descendants. In order to settle the moral issues raised by Satan, God has allowed evil and suffering, but he will not permit them to continue forever. And that's where the ransom theory comes in for atonement. People who die pass out of existence. They do not suffer in a fiery hell of torment. God will bring 
billions back to death, from death by means of a resurrection. However, those who refuse to learn God's ways after being raised to life will be destroyed forever with no hope of resurrection. So those who refuse God, even after the resurrection, instead of being uh, thrown into the fiery lake of fire, they will just be destroyed. There, they will be no more. After the resurrection, yep. So all are raised. They stand before the judgment seat of God. And if they don't repent and go God's way, you're just gone. Family, we adhere to God's original standard of marriage as a union of one man and one woman with sexual immorality being the only basis, valid basis for divorce. We're convinced that the wisdom found in the Bible helps families to succeed. Worship, we do not venerate the cross or any other images. Uh, key aspects of our worship include the following, praying to God, reading and studying the Bible, meditating on what we learn from the Bible, meeting together to pray, study the Bible, sing, express our faith, encourage fellow witnesses and others, preaching the good news of the kingdom, helping those in need, constructing and maintaining kingdom halls and other facilities, and sharing in disaster relief. Church structure. So there are no full-time ministers. All believers are ministers. Elders are chosen to lead the kingdom halls. Services involve a lecture, a few songs, and a study hour involving uh, questions and answers. One thing that the Jehovah's Witnesses have done recently within the last, I'm going to say 25, 30 years, is they used to sing hymns, uh, which would be hymns that you and I are familiar with, those of us who are my age or a little bit younger. Um, but they've, they've stopped hanging sims, hymns, singing hymns, and they've written their own songs to sing now. So they have Jehovah's Witness songs that they sing. Um, ab above the elders are district and circuit supervisors. Circuits are from 18 to 25 congregations. Districts are from 10 or more circuits. Branches consist of countries where congregations, circuits, and districts are located. Each of the branches is called Bethel, house of God. So a branch would be a country. So each country would be considered a branch of the church. Um, these are just some statistics. They publish statistics every year. So the number of branches or the number of countries that they're, uh, that they're currently in is 86. That's down from 90 in 2017. The number of lands reporting is about the same. Number of congregations you'll see is diminishing. Um, worldwide memorial attendance, so the attendance is diminishing as well. Anyway, you can, you can see the numbers there. And that's what I have. Questions? We have about a half hour. Yeah. Yeah. So if we go to the back of this page or the back of your handout, it talks about some of the differences or some of the things that they question. So cross or stake, they do not believe that Jesus was crucified on a cross. 
Um, they see the cross symbol as pagan, and they're very, very uh, adamant to stand against anything that they perceive to be pagan. And so they've done research, and they believe that Jesus was actually uh, crucified on a stake where his hands would have been nailed above him without the crossbars. And so um, <clears throat> evidently that was a form of persecution. I, I'm not aware of it, um, but that's, so they will um, argue against the cross and for the stake. Um, patri patri sorry, I can't talk. Patriotism is seen as idolatry. It's seen as placing your country above your uh, Christian beliefs or your Jehovah's uh, Witness beliefs. And so participation in war and military service of any kind is strictly forbidden. In fact, any form of patriotism such as saluting the flag, voting, and involvement in politics is wrong. So they, they staunchly stand against that. They don't celebrate holidays. They don't celebrate birthdays, Valentine's Day, Mother's Day, Father's Day, other holidays. They're all seen as unbiblical celebrations that must be avoided. Even holidays such as Christmas and Easter are not celebrated because they're seen to be pagan. Not that the holiday itself is pagan, but the dates when they're celebrated are viewed to be pagan. So the 25th of December, um, that's when there's winter solstice in paganism. And so because of that, they, would, they equate the celebration of Christmas with the uh, celebration of the winter solstice, and therefore it's pagan, and they reject it. What do we do about the celebrations that are in like Hesper, like Passover? They would, I believe, allow those, but but because they don't celebrate, they don't really celebrate anything. They'll acknowledge them, but they don't. I'm not aware that they celebrate them. Yes, yeah, and that's pretty normal for any one of the, the world religions or, or uh, cults or sects that we've, we've talked about, yeah. No, no. And, and a lot of that is seen because, and I'm not justifying it, please, I'm, not, I'm just trying to put myself in their place. So if you're leaving my belief system, then you're leaving the truth and you're lost. And so as one who's known the truth and is lost, I release you to be lost. And so, yeah, I don't, I don't agree with it, but yeah, there's, there's a way to justify it. You know, it, yeah, I've got to be careful because other belief systems also do that. You know, if you talk about the Amish, and I'm not here to debate whether Amish are Christian or not Christian, um, when they shun someone who leaves the Amish church, um, it's not as strict as it used to be. So my wife and I are really good friends with a couple who grew up Amish. Their, her parents didn't come to the wedding, but now they have great relations with their families. So it's, that's starting to change now a little bit. But as far as I know in Jehovah's Witness, when you leave, then you are no longer part of the family. So, so medical assistance or drinking. So blood transfusions are rejected. 
because Scripture teaches that you're not supposed to eat or drink blood. And so they would see blood transfusions as a way of eating or drinking blood. So therefore, they reject blood transfusions. Um, and so, and they've actually won court cases now where they don't have to receive uh, blood transfusions. Uh, truth or false prophecy, and that just kind of raises the questions related to their prophecies. Christ returned invisibly in 1914, and they're very good at, at, if you go to their website, they will have articles that basically talk around each one of the prophecies and how they justify that. So... Yeah. So the, the Mormons have a very distinct doctrine as it relates to the priesthood. I've not read anything where the where the Jehovah's Witnesses talk about the priesthood. Um, the the LDS Church, though the Mormon Church, they have uh, what they would call the Aaronic priesthood, the priesthood of Aaron, which is the priesthood of all believers. They believe that as long as you've gone through. Uh, the temple cleansing, then you can be part of the Aaronic priesthood, which makes you a leader in your church. Um, and then there's a higher level of that, which is the Melchizedek priesthood, which then that's when you've gone through more temple uh, processes, and then you can be uh, leader over the churches and over larger, larger, um, what they call stakes and larger gatherings of, of the churches. So they have, they have two di very distinct levels, yeah. But that's the LDS church. The, the New World Translation? Um, I haven't gone through and found all of the differences, but there are enough differences that in key places, it will change the understanding. I gave the example of John 1.1. There are other examples in there where they've twisted uh, or they've changed the understanding or, or translation of a passage that then changes the understanding of some of the basic Christian doctrines. So, But it's close enough that unless you know that that's their translation, it's easy for people to get to get confused with it. So, please, everyone, everyone that's here, you now know, right, that the Jehovah's Witness translation of the Bible is called the New World Translation. So I'm going to give you a task. I'm going to ask you to do something. How many people here like going in bookstores, especially used bookstores? That's my nerd out space, okay? So when you go to a used bookstore and you go to the Christian section of that bookstore, they are going to have Bibles there. If you find a New World Translation of the Bible, please remove it from the Christian section and take it to the World Religion section. Okay? Because there are many Christians out there who don't understand the differences in the translations. And I have never gotten in trouble yet at a bookstore for doing that, okay? 
Because when I talk, and I've had, I've had staff of bookstores come up to me and say, what are you doing? And when I explain it to them, they're like, oh, okay, we didn't know that. And so they've allowed me to put it in the world religion section. What? <laughs> it might be the gray hair that lets me do it. I don't know. But they've, they've always allowed me to do it. Yes. I've had, th that's the movement that I've had the least experience with. Um, I would say if I were you, I would, so they come to my house, but they know that I'm a professor and they know that, so they won't come talk to me anymore. Um, in fact, I had, I had a van load of Jehovah's Witnesses about three weeks ago. I was out mowing my yard and we live on a state road, State Road 15, which is a really busy state road. And so people will use our driveway to turn around, and they try to back out on State Road 15, and it just scares me because there's so many cars just flying down that straightaway. So if I see people, I'll wave them in. I have a turnaround in my, in my driveway, and I'll wave them in, and I'll you know, tell them to please use the turnaround and then go back out. Um, and it was a whole van load of Jehovah's Witnesses and they were very friendly, they were very kind, but they wouldn't talk to me about their faith. Um, they'll, leave, they'll leave materials on my doorstep, but they won't talk to me. So, so I really don't know. I would say if I were you, it depends on, on your level of understanding, but I would say just try to talk to them about their understanding of Scripture try to talk to them. I don't know that they'll go into great detail with you about their understanding of Jesus, not on the first time that you're talking with them. Um, but you could talk to them about their understanding of, of paradise on earth, because that's a big topic for them, and how they come up with that, and how they justify that scripturally. Um, and then you can look at Revelation and look at the new heaven and the new earth, and you know, do a comparison there with them. I don't know if they'll go that deep with you or not because many of them are only trained in the, the topic areas that they use in their, in their evangelization. So, but be, be kind to them, be friends with them. And um, I've never known anyone to, to, you know, just like get really mad and walk away unless you do something to really try to offend them. You know, if you want them to leave, just tell, ask them if they will pray with you in the name of Jesus, and they'll say no, and they'll leave because they don't pray in the name of Jesus. It's Jehovah. The, the paradise on, on earth, did that just come up after the 144,000 filled up, and they're like, hmm, now what do we do? I'm not sure how it started, but it, it, that was a big push after that, yeah. I don't know if they had it before the 144,000 or if it came up after but it's been a, a big teaching since then, yeah. Is that like the millennial reign of, of that scripture? Or that um, religion, or? Well, they're distorting the, the... So in Revelation... Let me find it here for us really quickly.
let's see here. So in chapter 7 of Revelation, it says this. It says, After this I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, holding back the four winds of the earth to prevent any winds from blowing in the land or on the sea or any, on any tree. Then I saw another angel coming from the east, having the seal of the living God. He called out in a loud voice to the four angels who had been given power to harm the land and the sea. Do not harm the land or the sea or the trees until we put a seal on the foreheads of the servants of our God. Then I heard the number of those who were sealed, 144,000 from all the tribes of Israel. So that's where they get the 144,000 from, um, but they see it as 144,000 witnesses. So they say it's not working for their faith, um, and, and they may believe that. I don't know, um, but it's definitely a part of what you need to do as a believer is you need to be out there um, sharing your faith with others. You know, they used to talk about that. There used to be more in their in their teaching about that that's kind of been marginalized so they could still do that i don't know um but it's not anything that i've read recently that they that they do and and part of that is they're really trying to to soften what they do to be more well received by by people and so that could be one of the pieces that it's still there but they just don't talk as much about it Yes, but in a different way. I'm not familiar with the, the Jehovah's Witnesses who are trying to, to move into Orthodox Christianity. When I say Orthodox, you know what I mean by that, right? Generally accepted uh, uh, Christian churches. I don't see the Jehovah's Witnesses trying to move in that way uh, because they see themselves as different, but they want to be better received. So, so they're kind of softening some of that. The progressive churches, well, they just, they don't deal with it. They just say it doesn't exist, that a loving God would never, yeah. And so, I mean, there's ways that you could kind of wrestle with it. Um, so in Christian theology, they, they wrestle with the different terms, terminology. So in Hebrew, you have terms for, uh, for where people go when they die. In Greek, you have different terms for that. And just the understandings of Hades and Sheol and Gehenna and these different places. And then the fiery lake of fire. How do they differ from one another? And so they'll wrestle through that. Um, Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 
And even in the Presbyterian church back then, it was a very distinct, you know, from Charles Taze Russell, came from a Presbyterian background. And that was very strong in that. But they rejected it. They, they rejected that, a God, that God would do that. So, yeah. As far as I know, anyone can come. Um, I don't know that they would be receptive to somebody asking them lots of questions during their worship service, but as far as I know, people are welcome to come. Um, same with the LDS church. People are welcome to come. Um, but they're going to want to know why you're there and you know that sort of thing. So. Other questions? It's, it depends on where you are, but internationally, no, it's, it's shrinking. Not rapidly, but it is shrinking. So a big movement right now in the Jehovah's Witness Church is in the Latino culture. So more and more Latinos are getting involved in the Jehovah's Witness movement. So that's, that's kind of what's keeping it up. Other questions related to any of the religions we've talked about in the last five weeks? Mm-hmm. Yeah, they'll unpack those for you. Yeah. You might have to dig a little bit, but you'll, you can find it. It was interesting with the date, how they align with wars. Uh-huh. I mean, like in 1975, was great. You had 1973 Yom War, which the oil price and everything went crazy. So I could see where everyone would go, oh, yeah, 1975. Yeah, Jesus is coming. So. There you go. Yeah, I'm getting questions like that right now because of what Hamas has done in Israel. You think that Jesus is coming soon? Well, he told us, only the Father knows. So, do I want him to come? Oh, come Lord Jesus, yes. Um, but I also, you know what, we've got a lot of work to do before Jesus comes. We've got a lot of work to do. And so... Not that I don't want him to come. I'm ready whenever Jesus wants to come. I'm ready whenever Jesus wants to take me. But until that time, I'm going to talk to as many people as I can about who Jesus is and how much I love him and how much I want them to love him too. So, yeah. And I hope that you will do the same. I really do. People write, you know, all right. Can I, I promised I wasn't going to nerd out anymore. Can I break my promise and nerd just one more time? You know, I talk to my students all the time. I teach the book of Acts. And I don't know if you've ever really studied the cultural background of what was going on in the book of Acts. But just soon after Luke stops writing the book of Acts, absolute severe persecution broke out. Nero was terrible to the church. 
Nero in Rome, literally, if he found Christians, they tied them to a stake and they poured petroleum all over them and they lit them on fire and they lit the, the streets of Rome by burning Christians. And you think about what Paul, I just, I took a trip with my wife and, and a bunch of people from Bethel uh, to Greece and Turkey this last summer. And when you go over there and you see the rolling hills and mountains that are in those areas, and you think about Paul walking 22 miles a day to share the truth of the gospel. After being stoned and left for dead, after being beaten in Philippi, after leaving Philippi, you all, he and Silas walked to Thessaloniki, Thessalonica. That's over 60 miles to walk. And they did it with raw backs, where their, their backs were just raw meat. And, and we complain about the days that we live in. You all, we're living in times, when we look at persecution in the world, we're living at times right now that as closely mirror the times of Acts as I think any time in church history. And when you think about the book of Acts, from the ascension of Jesus in Acts chapter 1 to Paul going to Rome the first time in Acts chapter 28, that covers a period of about 50 years, 60 years. And the church grew from about 500 followers of Jesus to churches all over the Greco-Roman world. If the church can grow that fast in those conditions, how fast should God's, Christ's church be growing today? But it's not gonna grow till we get out of our seats and we, we deepen our faith in the living God and we, we live our faith loudly. I'm not talking about speaking loudly. I'm talking about living our faith loudly and loving the people around us. There are so many lonely people in our world, so many desperately lonely people that if we will just let them be with us, they will find comfort in our presence. And after they find comfort in our presence, then they will begin to understand our beliefs and they will receive those beliefs and those beliefs will absolutely transform their lives just like it's transformed our lives. But we have to get out there and love people well. I'm not talking about compromising truth. We should never compromise the truth of Christ. But we can love people well in the truth of Christ and let him transform lives. And we never know when it's going to happen. Can I just read you a story? True story. Our athletic director sent this out to us this week. I'm not going to tell you his name. I don't know the name of the student he's talking about because I've never met them. Um, give me just a second. This story just blew my socks off. I put them back on for tonight. 
true story, you all. Many years ago, my last year coaching before becoming athletic director, I recruited a student athlete to come to Bethel for the track team. He was here one semester and left. Failed classes and never bought in. Always negative. I just heard from his mom. She said the following. The one semester my son was at Bethel was the best thing that ever happened to him. He just wasn't ready for it at that time. He is now a believer, has accepted Christ as his personal savior. He leads a group in his calling to get people out of their addictions into following Jesus. He gives Bethel all the credit in starting this journey on his path, on the, in, in starting this journey on this path that will take him the rest of his life. His sister's now looking at coming to Bethel in the fall. Praise Jesus. This was so encouraging to me. We get so caught up in numbers of all kinds and in many cases need to, but this is why I do what I do here at Bethel, this story. This is a kid that at the time I thought had made a, I had made a mistake on him. God makes no mistakes. He came here for one semester and that has had eternal consequences. You all, we never know how God's gonna use our lives in sharing the truth of him. Sometimes we'll never see the fruit. Sometimes we'll never see the fruit. But that's okay. We will one day see the fruit. When we get to heaven, I believe we're going to have a celebration where we're going to meet people that we had no idea God used our lives to impact them. So let's get out there. Let's live our faith loudly with confidence in our Savior and let God do the work of changing lives. Amen? Thank you. Thanks, Kent. Appreciate it. I have a lot of thoughts that have been rolling through my head, even from right when we first sat down, uh, really, and from these last, uh, has it been five weeks? Five weeks? We've done this five weeks. We did this for five weeks, and that was it. Um, we'll definitely do more of uh, more things like this. Uh, we've appreciated our kind of continual um, fall series, something in, in Sunday evenings. It's been, uh, it's been rich times together. But one of the things you started with tonight um, in your prayer as you introed the evening, you said, Lord, help us with our empathy or help me with my empathy. Um, and I was, I've been thinking about that idea as we've been unpacking some of these religions over the last several weeks because there have been times when you've said something that they believe this or this is something that they um, would, would hold to or claim to. And all of us in here would chuckle at a few of those things. <laughs> uh, well, they, they believe that. Um, and then I, I had to stop for a minute and then maybe remove my Christian bias a little bit and zoom out and go, okay, I understand. If, if people would look on the out, outside of Christianity, there would be a few things in our faith that easily we could look at and go, that's a little odd. I mean, even the Trinity itself, we talked about tonight, they would deny the idea of the Trinity. We can't even wrap our minds around the Trinity. We understand the concept of it, but we don't even have anything that we could really point to as even as an illustration of the Trinity. We think about the deity of Christ um, even the miracles that Christ did, um, it'd be very easy for someone outside of Christianity to look at those things and go, "Well, you you believe those you believe those things," and so that that stuck out to me this, this idea of empathy. But I say that because this is why it's so important that we have at least some baseline apologetic for our faith, 
right? So these man-made religions, these ideas, these thoughts, this, like, how do we get to this idea of, of God or, or, ascend, or ascension or whatever else? Going back to, you mentioned Orthodox Christianity, um, historic Christianity, what did the early believers believe? What did they witness? What did they write down? Um, that's why that stuff is so important for us to go back to. Um, because if you look at some of our beliefs and go, well, how could you ever believe something like that? You're right, that is hard, unless I have a Savior who said, I'm God, died, and then came back to life again. That's why that's so important that we understand the resurrection, the implications it has for our faith, and to be able to, to, be able to hold firmly to something. I told you I had a lot of thoughts. I'm trying to get them all out here. That's good. Um, I love it. I had a conversation with a student earlier this week who was talking to me about um, a friend of hers who she was trying to witness to, and um, he was reading the Bible but didn't, couldn't really accept the truth, the, all the truth. He couldn't accept that the, tr the Bible was full of, you know, all of it wasn't necessarily the truth, but he's interested in it. Um, but couldn't he doesn't really understand the, the creation account and doesn't really think that that's all necessarily true, but he can respect the Bible for maybe what it is. She's like, where do I start with? Like, he wants to read it, but where do I start? Because he doesn't necessarily accept that all of it's truth. I was like, start with Jesus. Like, you got to start with Jesus. Like, go to the gospel, read John. Start with, start with Jesus, because once you understand who Jesus is and what he does, and you can get your, your understanding, the Spirit reveals to you who Jesus was, and then he says, oh, I'm God, and these, I embody these scriptures, and the scriptures are fulfillment to me. Then you can start working back into some of those other mm -hmm. things. But again, I say this to you because we have to have a defense of our faith. You don't have to be able to go out and prove mathematically to, to your, your friends or your coworkers or those who would maybe ascribe to some of these things. Um, the, the responsibility is not on you to, to, to mathematically prove to them that God exists. But we don't have a a faith that's built on ideas. Right. We have a faith that's built on a historical resurrection. Mm -hmm. And so having some of that grounding, I think, is, is important because if not, then it's just other, it's just ideas that we've heard. And we can easily look at them and go, well, that's, that's silly to believe. Yeah. Um, but ours is built off of resurrection. So in, in, li in light of that, last couple things. Um, there's been a book that I've referenced from the platform, and that many of actually we've had a lot of small groups going through this book, uh, just kind of organically. It's been really good. Pastor Caleb and I both read it. Many of us on the staff have read it multiple times now. It's called Another Gospel. Um, that's by uh, Elisa Childers. I would recommend that you pick up a copy of that. Um, she's an apologist. Um, is it is a is a helpful, easily understood written defense of our faith, talking about. Uh, where our, manuscript, our manuscripts came from, again, talking about Orthodox Christianity and historic Christianity. What did the early believers believe? Why are creeds important uh, for our faith? Um, talking about the, the, the proof of the resurrection and those things, like, it's all right for you to have some of that in your back pocket as you have some of these conversations. You probably should. Um, our faith is a, is a faith. We, we trust in something we can't necessarily see, but it's also not a unfounded faith. It's it's built on history, and it is. I mean, one of the things you mentioned was we have the most historic religion <laughs> this is historical, out there, um, and it's not even comparable, really, to to other religions or ideas out there. So, um, those are some things. Um, one more thought that I had on this, and then I'll close uh, close in prayer. Again, with some of this idea of the beliefs that we have, and again, we, we chuckle at some of these things. Um, but you also, 
you know or you believe maybe what you've been given, what you've been, what you've grown up in. Don, you asked that question earlier about, um, you know, did Jehovah's Witness do they shun people who would step away from them? He answered that correctly. Yes, we were just talking before we started. There's a lady in our church, a young woman, who who came out of Jehovah's Witness. And she got saved and was baptized here at Summit uh, a little over a year ago, approximately a year. Um, and she has, that's been her experience, is that her family has shunned her. And it's been an awful experience for her. But the reason that she walked out of Jehovah's Witness and turned her back on some of those things was because she started reading the word for herself. And it started to not align with what she was hearing and teaching. And so then she started exploring some of that. She was, this doesn't, this doesn't line up. And so she had to take a massive step of faith outside of what she knew, what she what had just been given. And so that's why, again, all of that, I think, points back to being able to stand on something firm. We can, we can believe something because we've been, it's been given to us. But that's not, that's not simply what our faith is as Christians and believers. It isn't just something, a belief system we've been handed by our parents. We need to be able to own it for ourselves. And part of that is to be able to go back and understand and apologetic for our faith. It's historic. It's real. It's true. We have a God who lives and he loves us, and he's personal. Amen. Yeah. Can you pray for us? I would love to. I appreciate you. Yeah, I please do. It's probably not good for both of us to stand up I, here. Yeah. I love what Pastor Chuck said, okay? I would encourage you to get that book and get started with that, okay? But you have a starting point already as well. Every one of us sitting here in this room, well, I'm standing, but every one of us in this room has a testimony. Every one of us has a testimony of what God has done in our lives. And that is the richest thing you can share with anyone. And so take your testimony and start reading some of these books. And that will help you to be able to explain your testimony even more deeply. Um, you have to start somewhere. Yeah. And you have the starting point. You have your testimony. And that's going to impact lives more than you would ever imagine. So please, uh, you're already equipped. Just equip yourselves more as you walk through your, your faith journey. Yeah, I think that's really good. You, you can't start a conversation. Let me talk about textual criticism with you. Let's, <laughs> you don't start, you don't start uh, uh, sharing your faith like that. Uh, you, sh you start with your story. And, and then as, as questions then come, of going, well, what do you stand on with all those things? Well, there is something to stand on as well. It's not just what I feel and experience, but that is the starting place is your testimony. Um, I want to thank uh, Kent before he prays. Um, will we, you thank him one more time for being here, being part of this? Uh, we're privileged. We're privileged to have you um, at Bethel, and we're privileged to have you here. And we're grateful for the gift that you've given us over the last five weeks. So hopefully, this won't be the last time. <laughs>